This morning we're continuing with our series through 1 Corinthians, and then over the next two Sundays we'll take a break from 1 Corinthians, and then we'll come back to it on January the 8th. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Now, my guess is that everyone here has faced an evaluation of some type in your life. Whether it's an evaluation that took place in school or maybe it's a work evaluation, we've all gone through those evaluations. It was my final year in Bible college, last semester, and I found out that in order to graduate, I needed to have one additional credit hour than what I was planning on taking. So being in that mode that I was time to be out of school mentally, I thought, I'm going to take something very easy. And I, I discovered I could take a one-hour speech course. Now, I had already spent a summer traveling with the Christian drama team. I had also preached in, in services with over 700 people in them, and at times the school would send me out with their teams to preach in, in churches, so I thought, I've got this. I'm going to just take this easy course. Well, I got a, a, a message in the school mail. That's how we communicated back then. We didn't have, uh, you know, the iPhones and that. School mail was how you got your information. And the prof said to me, and he says, okay, for our first meeting, I want you to prepare a 30-minute message. I want you to put a piece of poetry in that message. And so I thought, I've got this. So I show up. First of all, it's pretty intimidating to speak to one person. You know, you walk into the room, he pulls out his chair, he sits down and basically says, go for it. So I did. I preached my message. And when I got through, he sat back in his chair, he paused for a moment, and he looked at me and he said, you think you're pretty good, don't you? Now, now, how do you answer that? So my response was, no, no, I think I'm okay, uh, but I wouldn't say I'm pretty good. He says, oh, come on. You really think you're pretty good, don't you? And I said, okay, I do a decent job. I will give you that. And he looked at me and said, this message, you've preached it before, haven't you? And I said, well, yeah, I did. And that piece of poetry in the message, it wasn't there when you preached it, was it? And I said, no, it wasn't. And he says, then why did you put it in? I said, because you told me to put a piece of poetry into the message. And he proceeded to rip me up one side and down the other just basically destroying my whole presentation and how I had preached the message and everything. Well, we, I mean, we ended up with a good relationship. He gave me an A in the, the class when it was all over. But that was exactly what I needed. 
for someone to be brutally honest with me and to set me on a road to where I could benefit from those comments. Well, the Apostle Paul is going to give an evaluation to the church at Corinth. You remember last week as we are going through chapter 3, he had let them know that all of their works are one day going to be examined, that the foundation is laid in Christ, and that we build upon that foundation with either gold, silver, and precious stones, or we build with, on it with wood, hay, and, and stubble, or straw, and that one day it's all going to be tested by fire. Keeping that in mind, Paul now just continues on with his thoughts. And we're going to see, first of all, Paul's view of himself. Look at that in verses 1 to 5. He says there, This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. So first of all, here in the passage, we're going to see Paul's view of himself. Remember, this is a church that is divided up over personalities, some have said, I am of Paul, others, I am of Apollos, others, I am of Cephas, and some, I am just of Christ. So there's divisions there, and so Paul's going to talk about, first of all, his view of himself. And the first thing I want you to see there is Paul views himself as a servant. This is how one should regard us. He's speaking of the apostles, he's speaking of Apollos as well, as servants of Christ. Now we saw in the previous chapter that Paul used a word for servant that meant table waiter, the same word that we use for deacon, and he applied that to himself. Here he uses a different word for servant. The word that is used here is a word that basically means an oarsman. Now, Corinth was a seaport, and it was common to see Roman war galleys. On the lowest level of these ships was a single row of benches on both sides of the deck where the rowers sat. Facing the rowers on a platform was where an officer, sometimes a captain, would stand so the rowers could see him. It was the oarsman's task to row according to the cadence set by the officer. The whole ship moved and stopped on his orders. The people who were doing the oars work were typically slaves 
of the Romans. And they obeyed the orders of the person who was in charge. Therefore, the ship would move along smoothly. The Apostle Paul says, that's what I am. That's what Apollos is. That's what Cephas is. We are all oarsmen. It is Christ the captain who is giving that command to pull, to pull, to pull. And we are merely his servants obeying what he tells us to do. Secondly, Paul says we are stewards. Verse 1, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, the Greeks would know very well what a steward was. You know, probably the best way that I could describe it for us today as stewards, it would be someone who was like a, a foreman in a shop. Uh, he's not the one who owns the shop, but he's the one who's over getting the workers to do what they're supposed to do. Or maybe another example of it might be a financial planner that you entrust your money to. It's not his money, it's your money. And what's his responsibility? To manage that money for you. Uh, in this world, the stewards were typically slaves, but not the normal slave. He would be a special slave that would be picked out by the master of the household to oversee the household. Uh, the slave was elevated above the other slaves and given responsibility to, of dispensing to the members of the household the things that they need. The steward was not the master, but he was a slave of the master. Now, what does Paul say concerning the apostles and concerning himself? He says, we are stewards, we're servants of Christ, and we are stewards of the mysteries of God. God has revealed to the apostles his mysteries, and biblically, a mystery is something that wasn't understood before, but is now being revealed. And that was the role of the apostles, to reveal. Remember, what do the apostles do? They're laying the foundation of the church. Christ is the chief cornerstone, or Christ is the foundation, and the apostles are building upon that foundation. And what was one of the jobs of the apostles? They were writing the Word of God. And so the Word of God is building and revealing to us things in the New Testament that were never known in the Old Testament. And the Apostle Paul says, that's who we are. We are servants. We are stewards. But he also tells us, in his view of himself, that he is accountable to God. Verse 2, moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. You know, if you have a financial advisor, what do you want him to do with your money? You want him to lose it all? 
You know, right now, in the last year, financial advisors have had a pretty tough time. But you have entrusted the financial advisor to what? Look out for your best interests. And you're going to hold him accountable. Now, for, for instance, if we're talking about a financial advisor, if we are in a bull market and he is losing all your money, you're not very happy with him, are you? If you're in a bear market, which we seem to be in right now, what do you expect him to do? To manage your assets so that he can limit your losses during that time. You want him to be faithful in looking out for your best interests. The Apostle Paul is saying here that he is to be found faithful. Verse 3, but with me it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you. Paul's saying, I'm not accountable to you. I am accountable, but I am not accountable to you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. Now, what does he mean by that? Paul doesn't mean that he's accountable to no one. He's accountable to God as an apostle. And in the realm of revealing the word of God, he's responsible to God. Paul says in verse 4, he's not aware of anything against himself. But it's, he says, but I am there, not thereby acquitted. Because I'm not aware in my own viewpoint as I look at my ministry and I look at what I've done, Paul is saying, I think I have done a good job, but that doesn't mean that I have. It is the Lord who judges me. You know, ultimately, every apostle, every pastor, every Christian, is responsible to God. Now that doesn't mean we don't have responsibilities here or accountabilities here in this world, but who is our ultimate accountability to? It is to God. And Paul says we need to be careful that we do not pronounce judgment before the time. Sometimes we look at things and we pass judgment too early. And he says we should not do that until the right time has come. And when, in case of us as Christians, that's with the coming of the Lord. So we need to remember who we are accountable to. We need to remember as a servant who it is we are serving. As a steward, we need to remember who our accountability goes to. And that goes to the Lord. There's a story told about John Kenneth Galbraith. Matter of fact, he tells it in his autobiography. He illustrates the devotion that his secretary, Emily Gloria Wilson, had to him. It had been a long, wearing day, and Galbraith writes, I asked Emily to hold all my telephone calls while I had a short nap. Shortly thereafter, the phone rang. Lyndon Johnson, President of the United States, was calling, and he identified himself. This is Lyndon Johnson from the White House. Get me Ken Galbraith. This is Lyndon Johnson. She replied, he is sleeping, Mr. President. 
he said not to disturb him. Well, wake him up. I want to talk to him. No, Mr. President, I work for him, not you. John Galbraith says later when he called President Johnson back, he could scarcely control his pleasure. Johnson told him, tell that woman I want her here in the White House. <laughs> it's knowing who we are accountable to. Right. Secondly, let's look at Paul's application in verses 6 to 7. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it. Paul's application on identifying himself as a servant and a steward and as one accountable, Paul says, learn from us. Learn from us. Learn from Apollos. Learn from me. Not to go beyond that which is written. Learn from us. And don't be puffed up in favor of one against another. Paul is going back to these divisions and again. And see, the people in Corinth were kind of puffing themselves up. Those who were of Apollos were saying, we're of him because he is such an eloquent speaker. He is so smooth. We're of him. And that's the way that preachers should work. That's the way that the servants of God should present the word of God. And then those of Paul were saying, man, he is deep and he has mysteries of God. You know, he even confounds Peter with what he teaches and says, that's the one and I'm a follower of him. But what they were really doing, this wasn't coming from Paul and Apollos, nor was it coming from Cephas, nor was it coming from God. It was coming from within themselves and they were seeking to puff themselves up and make themselves more important than they were. So Paul says, learn from us and don't be puffed up. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you do not, as if you did not receive it? Think of that for a moment, will you? Just an overgeneral principle. What do you have that you didn't receive? On a physical realm, when you came into this world, how much money did you bring with you? None. So why be puffed up over your possessions when you brought none of it with you and the reality is you'll take none of it with you when you leave? As Christians, and I'll apply it first of all to ministers and to pastors and to TV and radio preachers, what do any of us have that we didn't receive from God? If we're preaching the truth, where did it come from? 
It came from him. So why would we ever puff ourselves up and say, hey, we are so good, we're so great? Whatever we have, we've received from him. In your spiritual growth, in your maturity, wherever you find yourself this morning, what do you have that was not given to you by God? Take even your salvation. Why would we be puffed up about being saved? Because we're saved by grace and grace alone. We don't deserve it. It's been given to us. So Paul is addressing these divisions there, saying, do not puff yourself up. And then Paul, next in the passage, uses sarcasm. Now, some of you here are naturally sarcastic, and you like to be sarcastic. Uh, sarcasm, sarcasm doesn't always get you a long way, especially if you're using it with your spouse. Right? I speak from experience. <laughs> so, it is rare that we see sarcasm in the scriptures as a tool. But Paul does use it here. And I think there are times that sarcasm is very effective, and this is one of them. Notice what Paul says in verses 8 to 13. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Look at the contrast that the Apostle Paul will use here. He's going to talk about those in Corinth. That's the you. This is what you are. And then he's going to talk about we, who we are, referring here directly to himself and Apollos and to Peter. He says, first of all, you reign. You are like kings. You are reigning. But we, we are spectacles. Look at verse 9, for I think God has exhibited us apostles as last of all like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. Paul says, you are reigning while we are a spectacle. Now notice, the fact that they are reigning is not true because Paul says he wishes that they did reign. So he could reign along with them. Paul says, you are wise. 
Remember, the first chapters of this book is talked about the wisdom of this world, and they are priding themselves on the fact that they are wise. And Paul says, but we are fools. Because what did Paul say about the wisdom of this world? It's foolishness. It's foolishness. That the the world looks at the wisdom of God and regards that as foolishness. But the wisdom of God teaches us that the wisdom of this world is the real foolishness. He says, you are strong, but we are weak. You are honored, but we are of disrepute. You are rich. Look at it there in verse 9. I'm sorry, in verse 10. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor. We in disrepute to the present hour, we hunger and thirst, are poorly dressed, buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. And yet, compare that with how they viewed themselves. Verse 8, you have all you want. You have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. See the contrast there? See the sarcasm that Paul is using with them? This is who you think you are. That conclusion leads you to think this is who we are. The sarcasm of Paul. Next thing I want you to see is Paul's admonishment in verses 14 to 21. He says this. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Notice his tenderness there. I'm not writing this to shame you, but to admonish you. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. Paul is trying to call them back to the fact that he was their father. He's the one who brought the gospel to Corinth. Many of those in Corinth have come to know Christ through his ministry. Paul is saying, you can have countless guides, many different people that will pour into your lives. But remember, I'm the one who led you to the Lord. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. So Paul is going to tell them, let me go on verse 19, 21. But I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk, of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. 
What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? Now Paul's admonishment to them. Imitate me. Paul is living in such a way that he can say to them, I want you to imitate me. I want you to examine my life and follow me. Now you may be thinking, well, Paul's just a mere man. Why would Paul be telling them to imitate him? Paul in another passage would say, be followers of me as I am a follower of Christ. Whenever we are following a man, we make sure that his life lines up with the Lord. That's why we're not followers of men. But Paul is telling them when it comes to this subject of what we're talking about, of the proper view of yourself, you should be imitating me, seeing yourself as a servant and seeing yourself as a steward before God. Imitate that in me, recognizing that you are accountable. And that's his next point. You are accountable. You are accountable to Christ. And we all need to be aware that that's who our ultimate accountability is. It is to Christ. And Paul is is telling them, he said, I sent Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ. And he says, I'm going to come to you soon. I'm going to hold you accountable for what's going on in the church. And then Paul gives them a choice. He says, when I come, do you want me to come with the rod or do you want me to come with gentleness? Right? In the evaluation, what would you rather have? When you're being evaluated by someone, would you rather have them approach you with a rod of punishment Or would you have them approach you with a gentleness of spirit? And what is Paul saying to them? They will determine how he comes. And friends, lest we get the wrong idea in all of this and think, boy, this is really hard what Paul is saying and Paul is is going to come. In, in a, a way that he's going to upset all of these people. Paul's purpose is that they might build upon the foundation with gold and silver and precious stones. Paul's desire is that they may live their lives in such a way that they will be rewarded by God when they stand before him. Paul realizes that those in Corinth need a course correction. And he loves them so much that when he comes to them, he says, I'm either going to come with a spirit of gentleness to encourage you, or I'm going to come with the rod of correction. How do you want it to be? Paul loves those who are in Corinth, but he knows that they have gotten off course and they need to be obedient 
to the Lord. The city of Pompeii was destroyed by a volcano that erupted on August the 24th in 79 AD. Vesuvius, that mountain, erupted, and Pompeii, which was at the foot of the mountain, was destroyed. One of the things that was found when they went back to Pompeii many years later was at the gate of the city there stood what was once a Roman guard. His skeleton was there. His helmet was still upon it. His spear was still in his hand. See, for a Roman guard, his assignment was he was to stay at his place until his commander relieved him of his, either as someone else came and took his place or his commander told him that it was okay for him to leave. This person, whoever he was, stands and is, as an example of someone who was obedient even unto death. He did not leave his post. You know, the Lord God has put each of us in his vineyard in places to work for his honor and for his glory. He's gifted each of us differently, but he wants us to use the gifts he has given to us for his glory. He doesn't want us to get sidetracked by lining up with different men in the church he doesn't want us to get sidetracked by being focused on temporal things other than eternal things. And what is it that he wants from us? It is required that a steward be found faithful. May we be faithful to our God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word And Father, we recognize that we are accountable ultimately to you. And Lord, I would just pray that each and every one of us would recognize that we can easily be distracted. And Father, I pray that you would keep us from distractions. I pray, Father, that you would help us, that we would serve you faithfully in all we do for your glory. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.